welcome to the last of four episodes on Deaf American history. These episodes were part of a larger project I started years ago, and I decided to release them now. These are not true crime and they are not deep dives, but rather a four-part overview of the history of sign language and deaf education in the United States. When this project was initially planned years ago, I planned on more than four episodes. There are a number of topics I intended to cover in full in the series. Things like the history of Black schools for the deaf and how that contributed to unique signs, the mainstream public education of deaf students, cochlear implants, and modern accessibility issues. Those were all topics I hoped to get to but never did. Know that I'm not ignoring these topics, and maybe in three more years I'll get to work on them, and they'll magically appear in a podcast feed somewhere. But until then, enjoy our last episode of this short series. As long as we have deaf people on Earth, we will have signs. And as long as we have our films, we can preserve signs in their old purity. It is my hope that we will all love and guard our beautiful sign language as the noblest gift God has given to deaf people. George Vedits. Today we are going to talk about the oral method in American schools. So far, we've talked primarily about sign language in relation to deaf education in the United States. But this was not and is not the only method of education, and for a long time, the oral method became the preferred method in the United States, and that is what we will discuss today. Even as more sign language schools were being opened in the United States, there were parents who preferred that their children receive an oral education. These parents continued to send their children to England for that education. But in 1865, the first purely oral school in America was opened in New York by Bernard Inglesman. Inglesman had taught deaf students in Vienna where no sign language was used at all. Only speech and lip reading were allowed. This new school would later become the Lexington School for the Deaf. Two years later, in 1867, arguably the most famous oral school in the United States was founded, the Clark School for the Deaf. Similar to the founding of some of the other schools for deaf students that we have discussed in the series, it began with parents looking for the best option for their children. Gardner Hubbard was one of those parents. His daughter Mabel became very ill with scarlet fever and lost her hearing at the age of five. Hubbard was not in favor of sign language, which was the method used in most schools in the U.S. He believed Mabel could and should learn to speak and read lips well enough to fully integrate into a hearing classroom. And with the help of a tutor, this did happen. Mabel was performing at grade level in a class of hearing peers at the age of 10. But it must be noted that Mabel lost her hearing after acquiring language and developing early speech, which naturally made the continuing of speech training easier. Hubbard was nonetheless impressed with the education Mabel received from the tutor and wanted to promote this method of education by opening a school similar to those in Europe that did not use any sign language. 
With funding from philanthropist John Clark, the Clark School opened in Massachusetts. In 1871, a man named Alexander Graham Bell began teaching there. While at the school, Bell met and married Mabel Hubbard. Alexander Graham Bell was born in Scotland to Alexander Melville Bell, a speech teacher, and Eliza Simmons, a deaf woman who was raised in the oral method. At 23, Alexander Graham Bell immigrated to Canada with his family. Bell learned and helped teach something called visible speech, which his father was an expert in. Visible speech is a method of using symbols to represent the position of speech organs in the production of sound. By learning the mechanics of speech, a person can learn to produce specific sounds even without ever having heard them. Bell eventually opened his own school, not for comprehensive education, but just for speech training, and he was a tutor to Helen Keller, the most famous deafblind individual in American history. Bell was a proponent of the pure oral method, as he believed sign language kept deaf people separated from society rather than integrating with the hearing. He believed deaf people would simply be happier in a hearing society. Bell was not unique in this view. Even today, there is a debate about whether a deaf person should learn to speak in order to meet society or whether society should become more accessible. So it wasn't his views on education that made him so controversial. It was his view on something else entirely, eugenics. Eugenics is, to put it simply, the belief that we can and should improve the human population by controlling who can breed. Through a selective process, undesirable traits could be bred out of modern human populations. While some who advocated for eugenics believed in forced sterilization of those with these quote-unquote undesirable traits, Bell did not go this far with his views on eradicating hereditary deafness. His view was more tame in that deaf people who were genetically deaf should not marry other deaf people who were also genetically deaf. This is a view as we learned, was held early on by Thomas Gallaudet. But unlike Thomas Gallaudet, Alexander Graham Bell never changed his view. Bell's concern was that in 100 years, there would be a deaf variant of the modern human population, and they would be entirely separate from the hearing world, signing rather than speaking, and he viewed this to be a bad thing. Bell acknowledged it would be too difficult to determine those who were genetically deaf and those who acquired deafness through illness. And it didn't account for hearing people who carried a recessive gene for deafness. So any law forbidding the intermarriage of people with a history of genetic deafness would be impossible to enforce. The next option he proposed was to discourage deaf people from marrying and having children with each other by keeping them separated. The only way to do this would be to end boarding schools and mainstream all deaf students to their local schools. But even this was not practical in the 19th century. Most public and private schools were not equipped to educate deaf students and wouldn't have the means to hire a full-time teacher or tutor for just one or two students. 
it just made more sense at the time to educate deaf children together in boarding schools. Bell's belief in keeping deaf people apart was theoretical, maybe it was philosophical, but it was not something he could figure out how to manage practically. As schools teaching through the pure oral method grew in the United States, they began offering another feature that was interesting to parents, and that was a day school option. Day schools could be set up quickly and less expensively than boarding schools. Working with local public and private schools, they can also promise integration into a hearing school at some point, as long as the student learned how to speak. Boarding schools were difficult on children and families. Parents did not want to send their children away, and often it meant one child was sent away while their hearing siblings stayed home. The families wanted to stay together and wanted their children educated locally while living at home. For parents who wanted their children home, it didn't matter to many of them if the school was taught in the manual method or the oral method, just so long as their child was educated and the family stayed together. At the oral day schools, there would be attempts at integration with hearing peers. The reports were largely that the deaf students felt they were more excluded during integration. Rather than getting an equal education, they fell further behind. Down the road, this would lead to a lot of educational reforms, which have us where we are today, with deaf students being allowed the accommodations in the classroom that best work for them, which does include sign language interpreters. But the day school model and integration into hearing schools were not the only or even the biggest factor in the decline of sign language education and the preference of oralism in the United States. A massive blow was dealt to manual education in 1880 at the Second International Congress on the Education of the Deaf, known as the Milan Conference. The Milan Conference was a gathering of deaf educators to discuss deaf education in the world. What it wasn't was a gathering of deaf people. Of the 64 delegates, only one was deaf. The main topic up for debate was the use of the oral method over the manual or combined methods. There were 12 speakers and only three spoke in favor of sign language, two of them being sons of Thomas Gallaudet. The conference passed a number of resolutions. The main one declared articulation as superior to sign language and called on the pure oral method to be the preferred method of education. The highest standard for education for deaf people going forward was speech and lip reading. But beyond that, they passed a resolution that sign language was not to be used at all, not even in conjunction with speech and lip reading like in the combined method. It may seem strange that this group of 164 educators from around the world came together and chose such an extreme as to ban sign language. Many oral schools at the time were like Braidwood, where they used some sign language and certainly as a bridge of communication until the child could speak. But with these resolutions, even that was tossed out. But this was by design. The conference was organized by a committee hand-selected by the Perrier Society, a group that promoted oralism and were against the use of sign language. They purposely invited those they believed would side with them, and the goal was to get deaf educators to agree to stop using sign language. 
and that is what they got. Not all schools immediately banned sign language, and not all parents immediately decided we're never going to sign with our kids again. Some of the schools that decided to adopt the Milan Conference resolutions decided to ban sign language entirely, not just in the classroom, but for the students' private use. To enforce this, children would have their hands slapped if they were caught signing, and they would even tie their hands to the desks. But it is interesting to note that in the United States, there was an entire population of deaf people who were prevented from the oral method, and that included those who attended Black segregated schools. The oral method takes a lot of time and effort to train in, as well as to teach, and this is another example of where separate but equal was not equal. Deaf schools for Black students did not have the resources provided to them that the white schools did. But by 1910, most deaf children in America were learning through the pure oral method. While the Milan Conference had immediate impacts, we know now, 200 years later, that American Sign Language has not just continued, but it has been recognized as a true language across the United States. Other countries have had their sign languages recognized as such as well. The reason for this is because deaf people fought back. In the United States, the National Association of the Deaf was formed in Ohio the same year as the Milan Conference. Rather than allowing hearing people to determine their future and to determine what is best for them, they began advocating for their right to exist as deaf people, not just defined by being unable to hear, but as a culture, a group of people connected through a shared life experience and language. In 1913, using money the National Association of the Deaf raised, George Vettis recorded a 14-minute-long moving picture called The Preservation of Sign Language. The entire thing was presented to audiences without subtitles, and it showed the depth of what sign language could express. Rather than sign language being seen as an inferior set of gestures, it showed audiences that it was a complete language able to convey thoughts and feelings and ideas. This is not unlike the demonstrations Laurent Clare used to do. Another goal of this film, as reflected in the title, was to preserve American Sign Language as the pure oral method schools took over. Should the language fade and die out, there would always be a record of it existing. But it didn't die out. Students raised in the oral method still found barriers to the hearing world. If someone turned away while they were talking, they would lose the conversation. And that's if they could understand it to begin with. Research has shown that only about 35 to 40 percent of English is discernible through lip reading. Adults who had graduated from oral schools would often seek out deaf people who could sign and would learn from them. In the early 1960s, sign language was so strong in the United States 
the sign language interpreting became a recognized profession. Then in 1975, with the passage of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, deaf and hard of hearing students had a legal right to classroom accommodations, which included sign language interpreters if needed in the public school setting. The choice in education for deaf students grew. However, research shows we still have a long way to go before mainstreamed deaf students are receiving the same education as their hearing peers. Due to shortages in interpreters, some states allow lower-level interpreters to work in the schools as they improve their skills. It sounds like a great way to solve this shortage while giving interpreters the opportunity to improve in the field, but it means deaf students are at the mercy of an interpreter who may have barely passed their certification test. These students can lose a year or more of education, falling behind their peers through no fault of their own. I recommend a book called Turning the Tide, Making Life Better for Deaf and Hard of Hearing School Children, if you are interested in learning more about this. 100 years after the Milan Conference, the 15th International Congress on the Education of the Deaf strongly challenged the resolutions from 1880. However, the conference did not overturn them, but rather demoted them to just recommendations, saying that all deaf children had the right to flexible communication in the mode or combination of modes which best meets their individual needs. In practice, the resolutions of the Milan Conference were no longer adhered to. It was 30 years later, in 2010, that the 21st International Congress on Education of the Deaf went several steps farther and formally apologized for banning sign language in education. They acknowledged that it was an act of discrimination and a violation of human rights to remove someone's language. They formally voted to reject the resolutions passed at the Milan Conference. Also in 2010, the preservation of sign language was entered into the National Film Registry at the Library of Congress. While American Sign Language has continued, this film preserves a time when a language was nearly lost, and it was not saved by hearing educators debating, but rather by the deaf community who fought for it to exist. And this is where I'll leave us in this overview of deaf history and education. But there are contemporary issues that still need our attention, and I really do wish I could have gotten to them. But there is one worth mentioning now, because it is something we are all participating in at this very moment. Podcasting. Podcasting is a growing form of media that is largely closed off to the deaf community. Most podcasts do not provide any accessibility solutions, and discussions about providing transcripts always devolve into talk about making our work too easy to plagiarize. But we need to sit down and decide where our priorities lay, with our copyright enforcement or with accessibility. If there is any call to action at the end of our series, let it be that we reach out to our favorite podcasters and ask them to make their episodes accessible to people who are deaf or hard of hearing either through transcripts or by converting them to YouTube videos and providing captions. It's a little step to be more inclusive, but it is something we can all do.
do. I hope you enjoyed the series. I hope you learned something. And thank you for indulging my brief stint as a history podcaster. We will be back to regular programming next week with more true crime stories. This series was researched, written, hosted, and edited by me, Charlie Worrell. The opening quotes were voiced by Lainey Hobbs, the host of True Crime Fan Club. You can find the link to the sources for the series and the transcripts in the show notes.